This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. We're going to be reflecting on together. So good morning, everyone, and good to see you all. Good morning, those of you who are tuning in online. I invite you to open your Bibles, if you have a copy of God's Word, to 1 Peter chapter 1, if you could remain standing if you can. 1 Peter chapter 1, we've been begun a series uh, through the book of 1 Peter. You'll find that on page 1014. Peter writes to these Christians who are experiencing a lot of social pressure. He wants to encourage them and help them understand how to respond to the persecution they were beginning to experience. And his encouragement begins by rooting them in their identity. They are God's chosen people, God's chosen exiles, chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, and cleansed by the Son. And then this leads Peter to immediately launch into this doxology of praise beginning at verse 3. So I'll begin in verse 3. The Apostle writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." (laughs) This is the word of our Lord. May he bless it to your hearts this morning. Let me pray one last time. Lord, we do seek your blessing, your grace, your help. Help us, Lord, to have the same longing in our hearts to understand the depth of our salvation, just as the angels, Lord, sought to understand it. Open eyes today, comfort hearts, grant us hope, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. I read all those verses 3 through 12 because verses 3 through 12 uh, comprise one long sentence in the uh, Greek New Testament. And it, this, 
these verses have three main sections, verses 3 through 5, and then verses uh, 6 through 9, and verses 10 through 12. So we'll take each of those uh, one week at a time. As I mentioned, I want to go slowly through this book if we can. And the main clause of this whole long sentence, verses 3 through 12, the main clause is the first one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else he says is somehow speaking about that, the hows, the whys, and the wherefores. So that main clause is blessed be or blessed is uh, the, fa- the Lord our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And taken in context that we just read, what verses 3 through 5 are teaching is this. This is the main message. Christians can praise God while suffering in exile because in Christ they have been given the hope of future glory which cannot be taken away from them. That's the message of verses 3 through 5 in context. There's a whole lot that can be taken away from you and me. There's a whole lot that can be lost from wealth to health to loved ones. But what God has given us in Christ, future glory, cannot be taken or lost ever. And that is the heart and soul of this this section, these verses. And Peter believes that, he believes that his readers and you could come to the place where he is, where he can praise God in the midst of the, the furnace, under whatever clouds hang over you as a result of being God's exile, God's misfit <laughs> in, in this culture, in this world. Uh, but first, you must know the true God as he knows him. Notice what he says, blessed be the God, not just any God or some God, blessed be the God who is the Father, the God who is the Father, and he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not some nebulous God, not some man-made deity that Christians know and praise. If you know God, He is the Father. He is your Heavenly Father. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when He says that, there is no, no um, inequality between Jesus and the Father being implied. It may sound like it. He's the Father and here's the Son. The Father sends and the Son goes and, and so forth. But there's no inequality being implied, first of all, made clear right here by the fact that He calls Him the Lord. And the term he uses, kurios, in the New Testament is the New Testament equivalent to the name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. He is the Lord. And we know from elsewhere that he is equal, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1, 1. And so to begin to praise God, we must know the true God. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he wants you also to know that you can also praise the true God not only when you know him, but when you know the glories of your salvation that come through him. When you know that you've been chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, cleansed by the Son, and now he introduces this, when you know also what more God has in store for you 
a glorious inheritance that no one can take away. He calls that a living hope, a living hope. Hope, therefore, is the central theme introduced here in this, these short verses here. Hope, it's a central idea. And it's a very important idea, isn't it? A very important concept repeated throughout the New Testament. Hope, Christian hope, is one of the three great Christian virtues. Paul says faith, hope, and love. Hope, that's our focus this morning. We've talked about hope here before because it's so prominent in the New Testament. And one of the things we say is that in the way we normally can talk about hope, you know, outside of Christian hope, hope, the way people most of the time speak about is, is some sort of general optimism, you know. You know, like all things will work out in the end, so to speak. A general optimism that very often when we say it actually already includes the possibility of failure, right? So somebody says, how long do you think Tony will go today? I hope 35 minutes or so. Never going to happen, you see, never going to happen. That is worldly hope, beloved. (laughs) That's worldly hope. Biblical hope, right? has no no seed of a possibility of failure. It's not some general optimism. Is Peter just generally optimistic when he says in chapter 4, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. That sound like just optimism? No. He's not just saying, you know, keep your head up. Things will work out. It's not like that. Christian hope is much more profound. Christian hope, you know, is, is a certain, an absolutely certain prospect that just hasn't been consummated yet. It is the assured conviction in your heart of God's promised future, the victory of God in the future that has not yet been consummated. And so that, that sustains you in the present, in the furnace of life. And hope is essential for all human beings, whether or not it's Christian hope. People put their hope in things all the time. And Chris was praying about that. People put their hopes in political parties or in wealth or in something else, you see. But, but that is not the kind of hope we're talking about here. But nevertheless, even hope like that sustains people. Right? It keeps them alive, so to speak. Keeps sustaining them. And one of the worst cruelties that people can inflict upon other human beings is to destroy all their hope to crush all their hope. And that is actually a technique, right? It's used in torture. It's used in, by terrorism. It's used also in prisoner of war camps. It's tried to destroy all their hope. Um, Viktor Frankl, um, I don't think at all a Christian, but he was a, a Jewish psychiatrist. He, as a young boy, had lived through, uh, he had lived through World War II, through the Nazi camps. He survived Believe it or not, he survived the, the Holocaust. And he writes later in life about that experience of the loss of hope. He says this, I quote him. He says, the prisoner who had lost faith in his future was doomed. He says, with his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay Usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis. It began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed and work or to go out onto the grounds 
No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. He simply gave up. And there he remained, lying in his own excrete, and nothing bothered him anymore. When people get to that point, we say, he or she has lost all hope. They're gone. It's one of the worst things we can do with other people because hope is essential. Hope is essential. And Christian hope looks into the future, not just next year, next decade, or the future for this country, what have you. Christian hope looks into the far future, God's future, and it gives a, a reason for living in the present, a reason for persevering. Uh, hope makes our actions and choices significant in the here and now. Uh, our future hope gives us a moral compass. Why live the way you live? Why make those choices? Why continue following Christ, remaining committed to Him when it leads to such uh, struggle in this present time because of the future hope, you see. Future hope gives us not only a, a moral compass for our decisions, but it sustains us in the furnace, and that's what Peter is getting at. Um, you can praise God is what he's saying here. He believes you can, as he did. You can praise God in the, future, in the furnace because what you've been given is a living hope, a hope that conquers death, a hope that can never be taken away from you. And if only you can meditate and contemplate upon this hope so that it fills the horizon of your outlook more than anything else, if only you can do that, you see. That will lead you to not only persevere in the furnace, but as he says, rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible. <laughs> so this morning, believing in that, we are looking at hope, and what we're asking ourselves is three questions about this living hope. The first question is, how is this living hope given to us, given to Christians? It is A, on account of God's great mercy, B, by his life-giving power, he causes us to be born again, and C, or thirdly, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All that comes from verse 3. So let's look at each of those. How is this living hope given to us? First of all, on account of the mercy of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And so the God who revealed Himself in Jesus Christ and has saved us, he has saved us and given us this future aspect of our salvation, this living hope, he has done so according to his great mercy. That's the source of this living hope. Not any accomplishment of yours, but according to his great mercy. Mercy is another one of those beautiful Bible terms, New Testament terms, and sometimes we associate it with grace because there's so many similarities, but I think, and we've said this before, that mercy is best understood when we contrast it with justice. Justice versus mercy. Justice is to receive what you deserve, what you have coming to you. Mercy is being given what you need. 
A man steals a piece of bread. He's homeless. He's starving. All he takes is a little piece of bread. Jester steps up and says, I don't care how small that bread is. It didn't belong to him. It's thievery. There's laws against that. He needs to be punished, you see. Mercy steps in and provides a meal. Mercy alleviates misery. And when it comes to God's actions towards you and me, uh, it's not his justice we need. <laughs> it's not his justice we, 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 would, we, we would hope for ever. It's his mercy that we need, and it's his mercy that alleviates us of the consequences of our sins. But he does not do that in violation of his justice because praise be to God our Father. He has sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who absorbed upon himself the just punishment for our sin and our guilt. And therefore, God in his mercy can flood us with his grace and love, you see. And so you've been given a living hope. What's the, what's the reason? What's the basis? It's the mercy of God. That's why. And Titus, this is Paul speaking in chapter 3, verse 5, says it, says it this way, and it connects us right into our next statement. <clears throat> he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And there you have both. He saved us according to his mercy. That's where it comes from. And how does he extend his mercy? By the washing of regeneration. That brings us to our second point back in 1 Peter. And that is by his life-giving power. He has caused us to be born again. It was his mercy that moved him. And in his mercy, he has caused us Christians to be born again. It's an interesting, uh, to a living hope. That's an interesting verb there. Ana ganao, there's two parts there. Ana again and ganao, uh, birth or to generate, to birth again or regenerate. <clears throat> it's the only other time it's used, it's used by Peter again at the end of this chapter in the New Testament. Verse 23, speaking to them, he says, since you've been anaganaud, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Uh, he says, this is how that mercy of a living hope was extended to you. He caused you to be born again. And so born again is a translation of this verb. It's, it's an adequate uh, translation, but I think in English sometimes the again part of born again somehow minimizes what's really happening because it's not like you've been given life and you need something else to take you to a higher level of life or, or that you're simply un, uh, uninformed and you need more information. The way scripture speaks of it is this way. You are dead. <laughs> you are dead and you need what? Life, you see. Life, this is a new kind of life that you've never possessed. It's a spiritual life. But because God created your first life, your physical life, we speak of this being an again life, but it's a whole new thing, right? It's a spiritual life you never possessed. Paul uh, uses similar language 
And you know these two apostles spoke together. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse, verse 4, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, there's the source again, being rich in mercy, he adds to it, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, spiritually dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved, he says. He has caused you to be born again according to his mercy, and this is what brought you into this living hope. And so the focus is always what? On God's initiative, right? He caused us to be born again, not we ourselves. And that's true of both births, right? No one can take credit for their physical birth, and no one can take credit for their spiritual birth. I can't say that I, you know, after being a while in the womb, I came to the conclusion that I would be born on May 22nd. I was shooting for 5.30 a.m. or so. <laughs> and that these would be my parents, that I would be born here, that this would be my doctor, and so forth. No one takes credit for their physical birth. And Scripture says, here's the mystery. No one takes credit, nor can take credit, for their spiritual birth. This anaganel, this new birth that comes to us. Jesus taught this in a very similar way. You remember he spoke about being born again, the need to be born again to that man named Nicodemus who was a, a great theologian and he was confused. He says, what do you mean by that? Can we get back into our mother's womb? What are you talking about? And Jesus said to him, it's recorded in John 3, he says, uh, uh, unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So to be born again is to be born of the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then he uses an illustration to demonstrate how no one can take credit for being born again. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, and so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. God's Spirit moves in ways we cannot control. You ever been at a campfire? This always happens to me. You're sitting around a campfire, and the smoke comes into your face, and you say, okay, I'll move over here. You sit there, and a few minutes later... Smoke's coming to your face again. So you're all going to go across on the opposite side. You go there and the wind shifts <laughs> and it's back in your face. <laughs> he's saying you cannot control that. And he's saying that's the new birth. The spirit moves and touches lives and hearts. We cannot take credit for the fact that we're Christians in that sense that you were born again. But you were born again. Born again by the spirit's power. And so in order to receive this salvation, which includes an inheritance, this hope that lies ahead, you must experience this spiritual rebirth or new birth, regeneration, coming alive. We know the power is the Spirit's, right? But how does the Spirit do it? The Spirit uses a means, and I already read about it in chapter 1, here at First Peter in verse 23, if you look down again, he says, since you've been born again, there's that verb again, not of perishable seed, 
but of imperishable. So there's a seed, becoming a Christian is having a, a life implanted in you like a seed, and that seed was implanted through the living and abiding word of God. And what word of God? God has a whole bunch of words. What word of God was, 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 was what planted the seed in me? Verse 25, this word is the good news that was preached to you, you see. That's how it comes about, my friends. God begets his own children, and he does so by the power of the Spirit through the good news. We hear the gospel. We hear that we're sinners. We hear that we're lost. The Spirit brings conviction. We recognize our spiritual condition as sinners. We recognize our need, and then he opens our eyes to the love of God in the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection. John chapter 1, verse 12, to as many as received him, to them he gave, even to those who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. And then he says, how were these children born? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They had been born of God. A seed was implanted. God begets his own children and he begets his children through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I hope you've heard the gospel, and I know if you've been here sometime, you've heard it over and over again. We pray the Spirit will give you the grace to see and to believe in Jesus. This is what moves you from death to life. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me does not come into judgment but has, has already passed out of death and into life. That's it. So there we have it, beloved. How is the living hope given? The basis is the mercy of God. It's given by God's life-giving power when he causes us to be born again by the Spirit through the gospel, and we're born into this living hope, and this living hope is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the last little phrase there I want you to see and just like last week there's some difficulty with the grammar here the question is this what does that little phrase through the resurrection of Jesus Christ modify what is he saying is he saying that we are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ or is he saying that we're born into a living hope a hope that's living through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you see. The first is true, right? We are born again because, as Paul says in Romans 6, we have been made alive together with him and his resurrection. We experience a spiritual resurrection because our faith connects us with Jesus who was raised from the dead. But the second is true also. Our hope is not just some hope. Our hope is a living hope because Christ is living, <laughs> and he was raised from the dead. It's through his resurrection that our hope becomes not just a religious concept, but a reality, a living hope. So both are true. I think the ESV has it right to emphasize it by putting it at the end of the phrase. The main idea here is the living hope. So our idea, our hope is a living hope, uh, because of the resurrection. That means that our hope is not based on su some superstition. Our hope of being raised in the end with Jesus Christ uh, is not just uh, some sort of general optimism. 
Uh, it's none of that. It is grounded in what? Our hope is grounded in the historical, real, bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. You have not seen him, yet you love him. And that's because you've been born again and granted this faith in his resurrection. You imagine the impact of the resurrection on this man, Peter, who writes, and why he can use the adjective living hope. Picture Peter, huh? He, he saw Christ uh, crucified. He, he knew he was arrested. The last thing he said about Jesus within his hearing were three denials in public. I'm sure whatever hope he had, which was a hope that was less than the hope he was going to get, a hope that Jesus was going to be a Messiah that, you know, ride in on a white horse and free them from Rome and all sort of that, that sort of thing. That hope was crushed. It was gone. And then what happened? He saw Jesus after the resurrection. Picture that. Imagine that. He didn't believe it at first. He ran to the tomb. Yeah, sure, ladies. And he ran, right? And he didn't see him. He's going, what's going on? And then he sees Jesus alive. And the moment that happened, a flame of hope was just ignited in his heart that would never be put out. You see, the moment Peter looked into the eyes of the resurrected Jesus, what he saw was his own resurrection. He saw his future, and he saw your future. You don't see him yet, but you love him. And what Peter saw in the body of Jesus Christ standing before him, eating a piece of fish, he saw his future and your future. And so he says, our hope is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, a Savior who is alive and who is coming again. We are second coming people. Now, the second question is, well, that's how it's given, but what exactly is our, quote, living hope? We've touched on it somewhat, but let's elaborate on it. In fact, Peter further describes it when he says <clears throat> that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and un fading. Those two things are parallel. They're what's called an apposition. In other words, your living hope equals sign inheritance. He's further describing what this living hope is, and he introduces this idea that your hope is an inheritance. Now, generally speaking, we understand that an inheritance is property that is received upon someone else's death, right? Someone dies, and they have willed to you an inheritance, a portion of their wealth, if you will. But inheritance was also a very, very big idea, big concept in the Old Testament, which was Peter's scriptures. The, the Old Testament was Peter's Bible, and inheritance was a word that was used over and over and over to speak of the promised land, to speak of the territory promised to Abraham and to his descendants. In fact, inheritance is used over and over in the book of Joshua when they were partitioning out the land before they entered into the promised land. So much will be for the tribe of Joseph, so much for the tribe of Judah, so much for the tribe of Benjamin, etc. And so the land was theirs, but they were not in it yet. 
It was theirs how? Through God's promise, through God's covenant. In other words, it, on paper, their, the land was theirs. It was in escrow, and they had their name on it. However, it was not consummated. And so until they entered that promised land, they were what? They were aliens, exiles, sojourners, pilgrims on the way to a promised land, a land promised according to the Mosaic covenant, the covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. And so what Peter's saying is that like the Israelites, you and I, Christians, we are exiles and sojourners moving towards a future inheritance a promised land, if you would, that is part of our covenant in which we find ourselves in, the new covenant. Our salvation in Jesus and our inheritance far exceeds all that is there that was promised in the old covenant. We have experienced a new exodus. Our exodus is freedom not from Egypt, not from slavery to Egypt, but an exodus that brought us about, brought about freedom from slavery to sin, to its pollution and to its presence ultimately and to its guilt. And we have been set free through a, a Passover lamb that's greater than a little lamb, right? Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed, says Paul. And like the Israelites, we are now sojourners, pilgrims, wandering not in a wilderness surrounding Palestine, but we are wandering all over the globe throughout the centuries, sojourners and aliens even now until we arrive into our better and new and greater inheritance, that inheritance which is ours through the covenant with Jesus Christ. Uh, the author of Hebrews touches on it over and over. I only read this passage. Hebrews 9, 15 says, He, Jesus, is the meteor of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, an everlasting inheritance through the new covenant promises. And so we are on our way to that inheritance. And then he says that inheritance is being kept in heaven for you. Kept in heaven for you. Now, I have to take a few minutes to talk about heaven because no matter how many times we may come across it in the Bible, we still have the residue of little children's books with people playing harps and clouds, right? Unfortunately, heaven has been for centuries depicted in, in hymns and in books as this sort of ethereal experience that, if we're all honest, is just unceasingly boring, right? Uh, how long can I play a harp? Please, give me something else. You know, that if, you th if you think that way, you're, you're way, way low, way down here. When we went to the book of Daniel, we talked about what is heaven. Well, the term's used in different ways. Remember, it's used to speak of the skies, right, and, and the clouds and so forth, the stars. But heaven, as it's being used here, uh, it's like in the book of Daniel. Heaven is not a place you have to travel to and you get to if you get in a rocket and fly far, far enough, Right? I'm going up and up and up, and I finally, whoa, there's God. This is amazing. I'm in heaven. That's not how it works. Heaven's not a place you have to travel to. What is heaven? Heaven is where the presence of God, where his glory 
is constantly manifest, and we would say today, without filters. Without filters. The glory of all that God is. Heaven is God's space. It's where His presence is. It's not a place we travel to. It's a place that's hidden to us now, but is always near us. Always near us. Heaven's a place that is opened up to us. Heaven's a place you enter into, a spiritual realm you and I will enter into upon death, not a place we'll travel to and go to. We enter in the presence of Christ, as Paul says. And so, heaven, he says, heaven is where your inheritance is being kept. Think about that. In heaven, where God is present, the throne of the living God, your inheritance, God's plans for you, God's purposes for you uh, are, are safe with him. <laughs> He's keeping them there, you see. And no one can alter that. So if you picture this way, that your inheritance is written on a will, and that will is in a safe, and that safe is in heaven. <laughs> and you don't have to go to the safe and open it and jump in in order to enjoy heaven <laughs> or enjoy your inheritance. It's that God's promises for you are safely kept in his very presence. And one day that safe is going to be opened by the living God. And then you will enter into all that he has promised, which he's kept safe for you and me. So what is that? In other words, what's written on the will? I want to know, right? Everyone hates reading legal documents, right? Especially those long, long ones. But if somebody was about to read a will in which you're in, you have an inheritance, you'd be probably perking up, going, yeah, I want to hear this one. So what's in yours? What's, what is the inheritance which is guarded in the presence of God. What lies ahead for us that God promises to fulfill that's hidden in this save? Well, I tell you this. It is much greater than what was promised. Uh, it expands. It builds upon. I think much of the Old Testament is, is, is a picture, right? It's a typology, a picture of greater things. And I'm not spiritualizing this. I'm not saying that uh, everything needs to be spiritualized. What I'm saying is that, there, yes, there's a land coming, and it's material, it's physical, but the end of it all is not a little chunk of Palestine. What is it? It's a new earth, a new heavens, a new creation. That's where it all ends for all of us. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit, what? The earth. And when he's talking about the earth, he's talking about the new earth. The new creation. Here we have no lasting city. Meaning, a city in this age, on this earth as it stands now. But we seek the city which is to come. Which is the new Jerusalem descending upon a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. And so that's what's our inheritance, beloved, to put it that way. Paul put it this way. He was writing to those Corinthians who were all caught up in these petty sort of cliques, right? I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Peter. And Paul says to them, why are you, why are you focusing on that? Don't you understand that all things are yours? All things are yours, how so, Paul? Well, you're Christ, and Christ is God's. How much does God own? All things. 
And so he says, all things are yours. Why? Because you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. And so all things are yours in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is the true heir. Jesus is the true son. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus obeyed on our part. He is going to inherit the nations, Psalm 2 says. The nations on a new, on a new earth. And you and I, Paul says in Romans 8, because we are married to him by faith in the new birth, we are joint heirs with Christ. That's why you're going to inherit the earth. And that's what you and I are going to inherit. We're going to, to put it simply, what is our inheritance? It is sharing in the glory of Christ as a joint heir in the new heavens and the new earth in resurrected bodies. Sharing in the glorious, the glories of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth as joint heirs. Sharing his existence, his bodily existence in resurrection bodies. Now listen, that sounds, that can sound you know, out there, right? But if you're a Christian, that's basic to your faith. It's essential. May God strengthen your confidence in what he has planned for you because that's what's written on that, on that will that's in the safe in heaven for you and for me. And this should make a ton of difference, right? Your hope is not what's going to happen in the next election. Your hope is not in anyone here really truly your hope is not in wealth your hope is not in any sort of human power all those things will be squashed on one way or another your final hope your living hope is that one day you are going to share in the glory of the son of god in the new heavens and the new earth amen okay and then what 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 more can he tell us about this well, it, what are its qualities? It's so glorious, Peter has, doesn't have words for it. So he tells us three things it's not. <laughs> it's not perishable. I know that, he says. It's undefiled and it is unfading. What God has in store for you, first of all, is imperishable, meaning it's not able to be destroyed. It's not able to be destroyed. And that includes what? Primarily it includes your future corporeal existence, your embodiment, your, your personality in a new body in the resurrection. First uh, Corinthians 15, Paul says this, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. What he means is, we won't all be dead when Christ comes, but we shall all be changed, whether you are dead or, or, or are alive, in a moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortal. That's your inheritance, an imperishable embodiment of your personality sanctified completely by God. You're going to appreciate this as you get older, okay? <laughs> you're going to appreciate this as you get older, and you're going to appreciate it when you bury a loved one. And, and you ask yourself, 
Is this the end? Is that it? Gospel says, no, it's not it. The gospel says not only is there life after death, which is spiritual, but there's life after life after death, which is what? The new heavens and the new earth. A resurrection. What the hope we need is one that can't, can't be crushed by the greatest enemy, the universal enemy of all human beings, which is death. And that's what your hope and my hope is. It's imperishable. Secondly, it's undefiled, which means it's not polluted. <laughs> not polluted. Polluted by what? It's never stained by sin, never stained by the, the sinful motivations, thoughts, decisions, choices that human beings make to injure each other. None of that will be present. We sang it, didn't we? No more sorrows, no more pain. I will rise. Lastly, it is unfading, meaning it's not subject to decay. Everything on this earth is subject to decay. It's all, all life, I put it that way, all living things uh, get frail and fall apart. And eventually it all decays and, and it dies. But what God has in store for you and me is endless life. Endless life, not subject to decay. And should someone fear that that sounds glorious, but I don't have a whole lot of confidence in myself. I'm in and out with God. I'm in and out with Jesus. I feel like I'm, I don't know, I feel like I'm torn, and I'm wondering if I'm going to be faithful, you know. I wonder if I'll remain faithful, and I'll be counted among those who are, who are, in his in, who are going to receive this inheritance. He says, it's kept in heaven for you, and guess who you are? You are the one who is being guarded by the power of God, you see, for a salvation which is ready to be revealed on the last day. Why is that? Why would God guard you through faith, shield you through faith? Because God's the one who implanted this life in you. He begat you as his child. He's faithful to grow you up. He began a work in you. He is faithful to complete it, you see. No one can sniff out a spiritual seed of life that God has implanted in you. You didn't just join a club, and now you can unjoin the club. You didn't qualify yourself because you were such a good person, and now you're going to unqualify yourself. You were dead, and then you were made alive. Uh, Paul says that he has qualified us to, in, to inherit to enter the inheritance with the saints in the light. So that's why you can be secure, beloved. Not only is your inheritance protected by God, but you are held close to him by his mighty power. And he does so through faith. Faith is what keeps us united to the blessings that come from God. Faith can be a flicker sometimes, right? Faith can get down. If faith is a flame, it could become like a little candle that's you know, in the wind, and it looks like it's about to go out. But if that's God's flame, it's an eternal flame. And it'll never go out. It'll never be extinguished. Let's all be honest with each other. Every one of us has had doubts. We don't like talking about uh, this. The church is the best place to talk about doubt. We have doubts about how could this be true? Could, is, I've been in the faith for so long. Am I, is it real? 
You may even walk away for a period of time, but I would tell you this. If you were born again by the seed that God implanted in you, that is a flame that will never fully go out. What does he shield you from? He doesn't shield you from sorrows and pains. Don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal. He shields you from what? Final unbelief. The rejection of Jesus Christ. You will never finally do that. Because God's faithful to you. There's that scene uh, in the Pilgrim's Progress. I hope most of you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress and Christian's on his way to heaven and he comes to that place called the Interpreter's Room. Remember that? There's three scenes in the Interpreter's Room and the the last scene in the Interpreter's Room, if I'm right, is the... uh, is, this, uh, is a flame against a wall. And it's very interesting. Let me read that, what happens there. He says, I also saw that once again, an interpreter took him, that's Christian, by the hand, and led him into a place where a stately palace, oops, excuse me, I'm reading the wrong one. Uh, it starts the same, though. I saw also in my dream that the interpreter uh, took him by the hand, <laughs> and he took him to another place, a place where a fire was burning against the wall. He says, someone was standing beside it trying to put the fire out by constantly pouring great amounts of water upon it, and yet the fire continued to burn higher and hotter. (laughs) What does this mean, asked Christian? The interpreter answered, this fire is the work of grace that is formed in the heart, and the one who throws water on it to extinguish it is the devil. But as you can see, The fire's burning higher and hotter in spite of this. And now you will see the reason why. And so he took Christian around to the backside of the wall where they saw a man with a container of oil in his hand. Secretly, this man was continuously pouring oil on the fire. And then Christian asked, what does this mean? And the interpreter answered, this is Christ. This is Christ who with the oil of his grace continually maintains the work already begun in the heart. And because of this, in spite of what the devil can do, the souls of his people will continue to walk in his grace. Our Lord Jesus put it this way. He wants you to be absolutely assured that you will enter into the inheritance. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You're a Christian. The flame of your faith may get down sometimes low, but listen, you're in Christ's hands, and Christ is God's, (laughs) the Father. And so he not only, to put it this way, while God keeps his inheritance for you, he keeps you for the inheritance. We persevere even through the furnace. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that brings us to the last question, and most briefly, because Peter says very little about it, but he'll develop it later, and that is, well, when does this happen? In other words, when do we enter into this living hope? Well, what's Peter say in verse 5, the second half? You are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
When does it happen? It happens in the last time, the, the last day, the day, the great day of our Lord. He's talking there about the second coming of Christ. If we bring all those events together and just reflect upon it in that way. And Titus 2.13 says that we are people who are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. On that day, the last time, on that great day, uh, your inheritance, the safe, will be opened, right? And it's, it's interesting, he says, it's ready to be revealed. Ready to be, in other words, everything about God's promised future for you is already done. <laughs> you know, the meal's been cooked. <laughs> the table's been set. It's like a great, beautiful sculpture, a statue that's been made by God, carved by God, but it's covered right now with a, with a huge linen, and, and, and it's ready to be revealed. You know, the, it's like Michael the angel has his hand on that linen. He's ready to, to rip that, that cloth off, and what's underneath there is the glorious work of God of what he has planned for you and me in the new heavens and the new earth. Inconceivable what's underneath that cloth, what's in that safe that God has for you and me. Ready to be revealed on that last day, in the last time. But on this time, we need to endure by faith. We need to walk through the furnace, as Peter says, if necessary. For a little while, you have to endure these trials that refine your faith and prove the genuineness of your faith is what he says in the verses below which we'll be looking at later you think about that on that day i like to think of it this way on that day the lord's prayer the prayer that he taught the disciples to pray is going to be answered fully he taught us to pray thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven on that day only God's will will be done in the heavens and in the earth, which will be joined once together again, the new heavens, the new earth. Will you be ready for that? It's going to be a glorious day. Habakkuk says, The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God without filters. <laughs> Life and love and without end, undefiled, unstained. Christian, keep your head high. Think about these things. Other hopes will be smashed here, but not that one. And death can't even take it away. Now, I have to say this before I finish. Peter uses that same word ready in chapter 4. But he says there that God's ready to judge the living and the dead. That's prepared too. God is ready to judge the living and the dead. The future holds one or the other for every single person. Either you will see that veil lifted and you will see the glories of your inheritance as a joint heir with Christ or you will face God in the judgment, without Christ, on your own, let's say. There's only two possibilities. Scripture's clear about this. 
Jesus, the most loving, merciful person ever walked the earth, said, this is it. He said, there is a narrow way that leads to life and there's a wide way that leads to death, to destruction. A way that leads to life. Listen carefully. He said, there's a way that leads to life. And then he said, I am the way. It's not a thing. It's not a, something you achieve. It, it's, not, it's not doing better. It's not trying harder. The narrow way is Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if you want on that day to enter into a glorious inheritance, admit your need, admit you're a sinner, admit that you need the grace of God and repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That you're on the narrow way, you see. There's nothing to do except to repent and trust in him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me does not come in to judgment, but has passed from death into life. He is the way from this earth to glory. He is the way for any kind of sinner to forgiveness. He is the only way. So turn to him if you haven't. May God give you grace and, and may you place your faith in him. Christian, you can praise God even in the furnace by his grace and what will sustain you is making sure your hope is in that glorious future at God's promise. They'll never ever take that away from you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you.